This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What we'll be talking about tonight is depression. And the, the biggest question that I'll be trying to address tonight is, is depression all in your mind? Is it just in your head? Or is depression in your body as well? One of the biggest impediments, I think, for patients with depression to come forward and get help is, aside from things like stigma, there is, thank you, we can actually point to things, good. Um, there's a, people sometimes question themselves or others around them question, is depression a real illness or is it something mental that you should be able to control, um, hence um, minimizing the need for treatment. I'd like to suggest to you this evening that depression is a physical illness, it's ingrained in the body, and is not too dissimilar from other diseases such as heart disease, and in fact may be associated with such um, diseases. It is an outline of what we'll be talking about. Stress and depression, is it just in your head? Or how does stress and depression get under the skin? And one of the main biochemical features that we'll be talking about um, are um, structures in the cell called telomeres. Uh, how many people have heard of telomeres? Almost everyone. Okay, great. That wouldn't have been the case a few years ago. Um, then we'll be talking about if telomeres are a kind of a signpost for something going on wrong in the body, and I'll show you some evidence for that, how do we get from stress or depression down to physical illness? What are the mediators of cellular aging and stress and depression? And the, um, the mediators we'll talk about are steroid hormones, inflammation, oxidative stress, and telomerase. Um, a very interesting outgrowth of this area is how does early life adversity, things that happened in childhood, how does that affect your physical health, your telomeres in this case, even in adulthood when the stress is gone? How does that get locked into the body? And probably most interestingly, can cell aging be prevented, slowed, or reversed? And I'll talk about some issues um, regarding treatment and um, certain lifestyle implications. Okay, so again, here's the question. Is depression actually a whole body disease, one manifestation of which is depression? So does depression affect all, you know, many, if not all, cells in the body, but it just manifests in, in a mental phenomenon um, or, or not? So here's a couple of facts. One, depression is the leading cause of disability in North America, and it's projected to become the second leading cause of disability worldwide in just, um, a, just a few years, in four years. If depression is purely a mental illness, or even if we're a little bit more sophisticated and we say depression's a brain disease, how do we explain this? Why do depressed individuals have a significantly increased rate of physical disease, diseases that are usually associated with advanced age? So people with depression get sick more often than people without depression, and the sicknesses that they get tend to be the sicknesses that are associated with old age. Interesting. Things like heart disease and stroke, dementia, obesity, diabetes, osteoporosis, metabolic syndrome, immune dysfunction, and premature death, even controlling for suicide. And um, it's the, statistically, things like age, hypertension, diabetes, smoking, perceived health, cognitive functioning, these... Um, these factors are more common in individuals with depression, even if you take all of those things out of the equation. It seems to be something added by depression per se that leads to the increased risk. 
Here's another way, there's a couple of other ways I'll show you to look at that. This one's looking at hazard ratios for depressed people compared to non-depressed people for developing cardiovascular disease. The hazard ratio of 1.8 means they're um, 180 times as likely to develop cardiovascular disease as non-depressed people. Coronary heart disease, stroke, congestive heart failure, other cardiovascular diseases, cancer, maybe not so much, other causes of death, um, 180% greater likelihood. And again, even controlling for many of those factors. This is um, a, um, probably the newest publication that looked at this, um, and this is graphed in a different way. This is looking at the percent of people who are alive. So they started with individuals, some um, elderly men in the community, and they recruited these men regardless of their mental health status. And they took they had a certain group that had no mental health disorders. They had a group that had schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, alcohol use. We're going to look at the normals, the, the healthy individuals in the black line here versus the depressed individuals in the blue line here. And we're looking at over a period of 14 years in these individuals who came from the community, um, the healthy elderly men, um, looking at the proportion of people that survived that had not died yet at years two through years 14. And you can see that over the 14 um, ensuing years in these elderly men, about um, 45 maybe percent of them were, um, were still alive. The depressed individuals by the end of 14 years, only about 20% of them were still alive. So there's a lot of evidence suggesting that there's something about depression and other psychiatric illnesses as well that may be associated with poor physical health, especially diseases of aging. Okay, so one of the aspects that I'd like to explore with you is cellular aging. Does it occur in people with depression and maybe other psychiatric illnesses that not only do they acquire diseases of aging, but their cells, their actual cells in their body, age more rapidly. They're, have, they're on an accelerated aging course. This is a slide from, um, it's actually Brenda Pennings, not, not by, that's misspelled, that's not Barbara. And um, she postulated that we start with depression or stress on this side, we end up with telomeres and the telomerase system, which um, almost all of you have heard of, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But what's interesting is what mediates the path from depression and stress all the way to telomere dysfunction, which, as we'll see, is associated with cellular aging. And the kind of things that have been looked at, and we'll talk about some of these, are the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, how the brain registers a stressful event and um, incites a stress response in the form of cortisol. Um, another major factor that's not on here that's excited um, by stress is the sympathetic nervous system, nor norepinephrine, epinephrine, ad adrenaline. Adrenaline and cortisol are two of the major stress mediators. And the question then becomes, could this be a contributor to the, um, the pathway from depression or stress to cellular aging. Another thing we'll look at is inflammation. This has become one of the hottest areas in psychiatric research right now, not only in depression, but in schizophrenia, PTSD, bipolar disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and panic. It seems to be the case, not everyone that has those diseases by any means, but on average, people with all of those psychiatric conditions have more inflammation in their bodies than people that don't have those disorders. Um, it probably wouldn't manifest on a standard laboratory test as a um, significantly elevated white blood cell count, but on average, it's higher than the average of people without those conditions. What is that telling us about certain psychiatric illnesses? Why do certain psychiatric patients have more inflammation in their bodies? 
We, we don't know. There's some hypotheses, which we could talk about later if you like. Um, oxidative stress is another process that can age cells in the body. I'll give you some examples of that in, um, in the next slide. And another one here, brain growth factors. We'll talk about this just a little bit. There's one that's been looked at a lot called BDNF, brain-derived growth factor, which seems to be low in not everyone, but on average in patients with depression, and that may lead to some of the neuroanatomic changes that go along with depression. So we'll talk about some of that. Okay, um, so first I wanna show you a simple schematic. On the next slide, we'll advance to a somewhat more complicated schematic, but not to overwhelm you with too much. I'm starting out with a, a relatively simple um, slide. So this is a hypothetical model. It's not confirmed data, but in this model, when someone gets aroused with stress, it sets in motion certain mediators that then ultimately lead to a substrate for, for illness. And the substrate we'll be talking about in this talk is shortening of telomeres. And again, um, I will talk very soon about why that is both a signpost and perhaps even a cause of um, poor health. So with stress arousal, inflammation goes up, cortisol goes up, oxidative stress goes up. All of these could lead to increased cellular aging namely decreased telomere length. Um, the variables in pink here, those are, when they become excessive, they could be damaging factors. Too much inflammation is bad, too much cortisol, too much oxidative stress. They're good when they're at normal levels. Too much is usually bad. But even if those factors are elevated, there's generally compensatory or reactive factors that can counteract the effect of these elevations. So, for example, with increased cortisol, that could be a problem if it was unopposed, but there are other steroid hormones in the body, such as DHEA. Have people heard of DHEA? Okay. And that may have some anti-cortisol-like effects. So if DHEA is high, that could offset the damage, potentially damaging effects of cortisol. However, if you have decreased DHEA or other neurosteroids, that could cause trouble as much as if you had just unopposed cortisol. Similarly, BDNF can... Um, um, can repair cellu cellular um, tissue in the brain, such as in the hippocampus. Um, but if that's decreased, then you lose the ability to recover from certain damage or to um, withstand certain uh, damaging factors. So let's go to a certain, uh, a, little, a little bit more complex model. This one gets a little bit more elaborate because in addition to stress arousal, um, here we're talking about mediators. That's defined as things that come into play after the event namely stress arousal, and they connect the event with the outcome. So these things may transduce the stress arousal into a substrate for illness. But we're also going to look in this somewhat more, um, more advanced model at some things that are moderators. Moderators are defined as factors that come in before the event. So they're pre-existing vulnerability factors. And one of them is genetics. Um, a lot of research is going into this now, and we think there are some genetic um, abnormalities that predispose to excessive vulnerability distress or excessive reactivity distress. Uh, I'm sure you know people who are confronted with stress and they're totally resilient. Other people are confronted with maybe a minor degree of stress and they become very, very stressed out. That There could well be a genetic underpinning to that and we're beginning to understand that. The other thing that's a moderator, a pre-existing vulnerability factor, are called epigenetic changes. Epigenetic changes also modify the DNA, just like genetics, but they don't change the actual code in the DNA, the code of nucleotides along the double helix. Rather, epigenetic changes are 
things that come along and don't alter the, the sequence of the code of the DNA, but they can cover up parts of the DNA so that when you're trying to transcribe the code into proteins, the transcription mechanism kind of leaps over that part that's covered up. So it, it's in effect causing a failure of the DNA to read out the proper genetic code, but it's not by changing the actual code. What's really interesting about epigenetic changes is that once they happen, they may be reversible or they may not be reversible. And we'll talk about how that might play in in a non-reversible manner when we talk about adverse childhood events that I talked about um, earlier. Okay, so those are the pre-existing vulnerability factors, stress arousal, individuals that have the vulnerability to experience stressful responses, as we saw before, increased cortisol increased inflammation, but also increased sympathetic nervous system activity. And as I mentioned before, cortisol and sympathetic nervous system, that's like adrenaline, noradrenaline, norepinephrine, those go up jointly. Um, In addition to oxidative stress we saw before, they can also engender excitotoxicity, which is um, it's an accumulation of too much of an excitatory neurotransmitter called glutamate, and that can, bur- in effect, burn out the cells if they're overexcited. And this has become extremely hot in psychiatry because targeting glutamate with certain drugs that have recently been introduced for this indication, like ketamine, um, target the glutamate system in particular. I'm not going to go into that unless there's questions at the end, but that's become a very hot area right now. So increases in excitotoxicity can be bad, can lead to cell aging and telomere um, shortening. But But on the other side, not only neurosteroids, but the body also has antioxidants. So as much as oxidative stress can damage tissues, the body has certain antioxidants like glutathione or vitamin C that can combat the oxidative stress. Um, And also there's the parasympathetic nervous system, and that counteracts the sympathetic nervous system. So as I mentioned before, having Activation of these can be bad, but it's not so bad if you also have an intact compensatory system. Where you get into trouble is if this is too low or this is too high or if you have a combination of both. So just to define a couple of the mechanisms that I talked about um, up until now, and then we'll move into telomeres, which is the the bulk of the talk. Um, Oxidative stress is a function that can clearly damage cells. It can damage DNA in particular, and within the DNA, it particularly damages the telomeres. The telomere part of the DNA is especially sensitive to oxidative damage. So what causes oxidative stress? Things like ultraviolet light, like from too much um, uh, sunburning, ionizing radiation, smoking is a big factor. That's reliably associated with oxidative stress and um, uh, shortening of telomeres. Air pollution, inflammation, and mitochondrial metabolism. This is another, um, in a small little corner of psychiatry, a hot area, and we're, we're, we're really getting interested in mitochondria and it um, as being malfunctioning and being associated with shortened telomeres and maybe being a short associated with certain psychiatric symptoms as well. And it, it's remarkable to me that psychiatry has come from Freudian talking about the superego and the id and the ego to talking not just about the body but talking about cellular, subcellular organelles like mitochondria. I think it's, it's an amazing transition in the past decade. Um, inflammation. Chronic stress not only leads to increased cortisol, but increased sympathetic nervous system, decreased parasympathetic nervous system. Both of those together can lead to increased inflammatory cytokines. Um, and this is it's kind of it's a colorful but a little bit difficult to follow graphic. When you have more inflammation, more activated white blood cells or cytokines in the um, in the periphery, in the vasculature, within the blood um, channels, um, the 
inflammatory cytokines or even the inflammatory cells themselves can migrate into the brain and they can cause things like malfunctioning in the serotonin system, decreased trophic support, decreased um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, decreased glutamate reuptake and increased glutamate release. So again, the, um, the excitotoxicity I talked about before. So there are, when we talk about inflammation being an interesting and perhaps pervasive feature of um, psychiatric illnesses, it's not just the inflammation itself that's interesting. It may actually be causative of some of the features that we see in psychiatric illnesses. And you're probably thinking ahead that if I'm saying that inflammation may be causative of certain aspects of psychiatric illnesses, then maybe treatment with anti-inflammatory drugs might treat psychiatric illnesses rather than giving Prozac or Paxil or Zoloft. And that's exactly where research is going right now to see if entirely different kinds of treatments might be effective for depression. I'm not going to go into that unless there's questions at the end, and I'd be glad to go into that further. Okay, so let's move into telomeres and telomerase. This is um, a picture of um, DNA, double-stranded DNA, and the very tips are stained red, and those are the telomeres. Um, telomeres are non-coding sequences that cap the DNA ends, and they can shorten with somatic cell divisions and serve as a senescence clock or a marker of biological age. Non-coding means that these don't um, produce uh, proteins like the rest of DNA does. Their only function is just a physical cap. And I'll show you a, kind of a schematic of that in the next slide. They, they physically cap the DNA, and it's a problem, as I'll show you very soon, when the telomeres get too short because then the, the remaining DNA, when these get too short, the DNA here starts to unravel and starts to kill off the DNA, kill off the cells. So you don't want your telomeres to get too short generally. Okay. Um, what causes telomeres to shorten? One of them is cell divisions. So if you have cells that are rapidly dividing, generally their telomeres will shorten. For example, if you have white blood cells and they encounter a certain kind of bacteria, they expand, they duplicate in order to have more white blood cells to target that bacteria. Every time the cells undergo replication like that, the telomeres get a little bit shorter unless there's sufficient amount of this other chemical, telomerase, in the cell. And telomerase is an enzyme that takes the telomere right here and it moves it through this apparatus and it rebuilds telomere length. So even if telomere length is shortening, that's not a one-way path. It can get rebuilt. And that's an important thing to keep in mind as I start talking about the damaging or the negative effects of having short telomeres. One, one option one might have is to slow down the loss of telomeres. The other option one might have is to increase the repair of the telomeres. Okay. Okay, so this is the schematic I was referring to. It's remarkably almost identical to, um, to a shoelace. It's, it's really not a far-fetched analogy at all. It's a physical cap on the DNA, and when that physical cap gets distorted, it gets too short, the DNA, the chromosome starts to fray, and it can either kill the cell, or if you have a bunch of these around, they can start to join up where they shouldn't join up. So cells either die or they can become cancerous if they get too, um, too transformed genetically. So what do telomeres tell us? What if you have a short telomere, and telomeres, let's say, for the moment are bad? I'll show you some evidence for that soon. There's two possibilities about what that's telling us. One is that shortened telomeres may directly cause disease. Okay, How could that be? 
if shortened telomeres lead to the death of replicating cells, then if you have cells that are replicating, like let's say you have damage to the hippocampus in the brain, but you have stem cells there that can regenerate and f- repair the, um, the tissue, if the telomeres there are too short, you're not going to be able to continue replicating because the cells are going to be dying off instead of replicating. They don't have any more telomeres to spare. Or if you have white blood cells and their telomeres are getting too short, you may not be able to fight off future infections because those cells have died off now. So short telomeres could directly cause disease, perhaps. But the other possibility is that telomeres are not causal at all. They're just um, like a canary in a coal mine. They can attest to the presence of a toxic environment. Okay? So if it's the case that telomeres are shortened by things like inflammation and oxidative stress or maybe too much cortisol or too much norepinephrine, if the telomeres get short, even if that's not causing disease, that says, hey, something's wrong with the cellular environment. I'm living in a toxic environment. Just like the canary dying doesn't cause the death of the mine workers, but the canary dying tells the mine workers, you better get out of here. It's a toxic environment. Okay? So either one of those possibilities is possible, maybe both. So a possible conduit by which stress impairs health, the relationship of telomere length to aging, longevity, and physical and mental illness. So let's look at some of the data that links telomere length to to physical illness or longevity. This is a standard kind of um, graph. A lot of studies have replicated this. This is looking at across the entire, pretty much the whole lifetime, lifespan, 10 to 80. There's a linear progressive decrease in telomere length. As we age, our telomeres get shorter. This is generally assessed in white blood cells, but it can be assessed in other tissues as well. But most research has been done in white blood cells. And one can understand why, as you age, you might lose telomeres, because every time your cells replicate, which happens more and more as you get older, your telomeres shorten. Okay. Um, Two things I want to point out. One is that even though the average telomere length goes down progressively with age, there's a whole lot of variability here. So some people may start here and they may go like that by age 80. Some people may start here and go like that by age 80. Some may not change at all. There's a lot of variability, not only in the cross-sectional telomere value, but the trajectory that people take over the lifespan. It's very commonly the case that with aging people drop off, but it's not invariably the case. The other thing I want to point out here is that um, you can measure telomere loss in um, so the DNA is made up of base pairs or nucleotides and the same thing with telomeres and you can count how many of those little things make up the telomeres and you can say, okay, well at um, age um, 49 my telomeres were 1,000 but at age 50 they were 940. So you can, ga- you can measure how much expected telomere loss would happen over an average one year. Okay, So the reason that's important is if you do a study and you have healthy controls and maybe they have telomere length of 1,000 and you have depressives and they have a telomere length of um, 400, okay, that's 60 um, base pairs difference between them. And you can say, okay, 60 base pairs, that's equal to about 10 years. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's 600 base pairs. And that's equal to about 10 years of telomere loss. Um, so knowing how many base pairs are lost per year can give you a metric of how much acceleration of the aging process has occurred. You know the person's chronological aging, but what you can do with numbers like this is you can estimate their biological aging, which is not the same as their chronological aging. Okay. And that's what we mean by telomere like being an index of aging, of biological aging. 
Okay. So cross-sectionally, telomere length is a short telomere length is associated with coronary artery disease, diabetes, dementia, immunosenescence, a whole host of other things. Um, but even more interesting, I think, is that telomeres at a certain point in time can predict who's going to survive as time goes on. It's not a one-to-one mapping by any means. It's not something your doctor can do and tell you if you're going to be alive or not in 10 years. But it's, um, it's on average, it's the case. In this particular study, um, I believe this was in um, elderly men as well. Oh, no, I'm sorry, both sexes. And they followed people over an average of 15 years. And they did a cross-sectional assessment of telomere length, and they divided the group into two halves. Those above the median, those were called long telomere people, and those whose telomeres were below the median, those were called short telomere people. And then they followed them over the course of 15 years, and they found the people that started off with long telomeres survived significantly longer at 15 years than the people that started off with, um, with short telomeres. The percent survival for the short telomere people was about 30% still alive. In the long telomere people, it was close to about 50% still alive. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Um, the question was, does cross-sectional mean at a point in time exactly? I mean, it's just straight a one-time visit. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Okay. Um, this, um, some more interesting data. This was pretty similar to what I showed before. I'm not going to go into this again. But this one here is interesting as well. So not only is baseline or cross-sectional telomere length associated with illness, not only does low baseline or cross-sectional telomere length predict how you're going to do over time on average. Again, that's important, not on an individual basis, but on average. But this shows also that the amount that the trajectory that the telomere length is taking over a short period of time, like two and a half years, is it stable? Does it go up? Does it go down over two and a half years? That degree of change over a short period of time can predict mortality at the end of 12 years. So in this study, People that these were people that had um, a minimal, so they were divided up again based on how much they changed over two and a half years. The people that showed um, little change over two and a half years or less drop off in two and a half years, they survived longer at the fi- at the twelve year point. Whereas people that had a, a sh- more sharp trajectory, that over two and a half years their telomeres were headed down like that, those people had less uh, survivability at the end of the twelve years. So all that data is cumulatively showing that. Where your telomeres start can attest to something about your health status, and where they go over time can predict where your health status will be on average. Okay. The first study to really really created this whole field of, um, I think you could call it stress gerontology, um, looking at how does stress affect the cellular environment in a way that might plausibly accelerate aging in the body and in the cell. This was a study done by Alyssa Eppel, who's here, Liz Blackburn, she won the Nobel Prize for um, uh, discovering telomeres and telomerase. She was here for a good part of her career. She subsequently moved to the Salk Institute. She's head of the Salk Institute in San Diego just recently, and Zhe Lin, who works in, um, in their lab. So their study was they took 39 mothers of chronically ill children, They had a control group of 19 mothers of healthy children. All of them were aged 20 to 50, and all of the analyses I'll be showing you were corrected for chronological age. And they looked at telomere length and telomerase activity in peripheral blood cells called PBMCs. And this this was a remarkable finding. They found that the, um, the caregivers the ones who had the sick children, they had significantly shorter telomere length than the control women, 
Not only that, but they had less telomerase activity than the control women. So remember I was talking before about you can have damaging factors, but as long as you have protective factors, you're not going to be in trouble. These women had damage, evidence of damage, short telomeres, and they had evidence of a relative inability to repair the damage because their telomerase was too low. Um, and they measured the distance here in base pairs, and that kind of formula that I walked you through before, they could determine that this difference was similar to about 13 years of aging. Namely, the caregiving mothers had biologically aged about 13 years more than the non-caregiving um, uh, mothers on average. But the story gets even more interesting. They found that the longer the woman was exposed to stress, the more her telomeres came down, so among the caregivers, um, those that had been caregivers for longer periods of time, they had shorter telomeres, correcting for, for their age. And this is a, um, a graph that I think is very nice and conceptually very important. Um, you could imagine that if you recruit a group of caregiving moms, they're not all going to be highly stressed. Some of those moms are going to feel, you know, this is their mission in life. They feel really good caring for their child. It's not stressful at all. You can have another group of control women who don't have a sick kid, but they could be totally stressed out, you know, bad job, divorce, whatever. So whether they're a caregiver or not may not be the, the salient differentiating point. So what they did in this graph is they put all the women together, whether they were caregivers or not, and instead um, they separated them by how stressed they were, how much psychologically stressed they were, whether they were a caregiver or not. And they found um, a nice inverse correlation. The more stressed women felt, the shorter their telomeres so that's kind of a nice um, demonstration, I think, of the power of the study, that it really ties to stress and not something about being a caregiver mom, which might create other kinds of differences. Okay. Um, a, a postdoc at the time in their lab, now she's um, an assistant professor here at UCSF, Aoife O'Donovan, um, did a couple of other interesting studies that tie cellular aging to psychology. Whole, whole new field, again. Um, part of their study was they took all of the women and they put them th with voluntarily, they put them through a stressful environment, something like they had to give um, a public speech in front of an audience, which a lot of people find stressful. And then they measured their cortisol and things during that. But what Aoife O'Donovan did is she measured how much did they anticipate it being a threatful experience. Um, they said, what we're going to do is we're going to put you in front of a live audience. How stressed out do you think you're going to be? So she plotted how much they anticipated threat against their telomeres. And those women that anticipated more threat had shorter telomeres than those that were more kind of optimistic, benign. Similarly, she looked at a pessimism scale, and the women that were more pessimistic also had shorter telomeres as well. So the way they interpreted this is that it's not only indicative of what happens to someone before they give a public speech, but it's probably attesting to their general makeup, to their a trait vulnerability, that people who go through the world anticipating threat or who feel pessimistic that things are bad are going to happen, those people have a certain kind of a mindset that is correlated with shortened telomeres. Okay. We're going to move now from looking at non-psychiatric populations into psychiatric populations. The first study to do this was done at Harvard by Naomi Simon in 2010 oh, years ago. And she measured the telomere length in healthy controls with no psychiatric history, various psychiatric patients, all mood disorders, major depressive disorder, bipolar without anxiety, bipolar with anxiety. And she found that all of the psychiatric groups had quite a bit shorter telomere length than the healthy controls. And she used the same kind of metric comparing how much 
well, this is like a mean here, and this is like a mean here. So how much is the distance between those two means? And it turned out to about 10 years of accelerated aging. So controlling for chronological age, those people with major depression had biologically aged, on average, about 10 years more rapidly. Does that help us explain the statistics I showed you at the very beginning um, about acquiring dementia and osteoporosis? I don't know, but it's tantalizing. Okay. Um, even though I'm talking about depression, I, I want to emphasize that the phenomena that we're looking at now are not specific to major depression. They do seem to occur in a lot of different stress, situ stress situations and psychiatric situations. Childhood depression has recently been examined. That's associated with it. Adolescents at risk for depression. Very interesting. I'll show you a whole slide on this. Schizophrenia not known as well, but it seems to be associated with short telomeres. Early life adversity seems to set the stage for telomere shortening. PTSD, bipolar, probably associated with it as well, but they haven't been studied as much. So what is this telling us? Why do all these diverse illnesses that have such distinct manifestations, why do they all present with the same biological abnormality relative to people who don't have a psychiatric illness? What's the common uniting factor? So my theory... Um, well, actually, there's a, a whole movement um, at NIMH that instead of looking at traditional diagnoses made by the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, instead of looking at discrete diagnoses, look at things along a continuum of pathophysiology. Like maybe these people have low BDNF disorders, and that could manifest as something, or these people have high oxidative stress disorders. The way I'm kind of construing the evidence that I've shown you in a way that can explain this is that telomere shortening is related to certain biochemical mediators like cortisol, catecholamines, oxidation and inflammation, genetic factors, environmental insults like bad um, or um, detrimental upbringing, and that these factors go across, sorry, go across traditional psychiatric diagnoses. Whether you have schizophrenia or you have depression or bipolar, you could be equally likely to have inflammation or have had a bad childhood, etc. So there's factors above and beyond the traditional diagnosis that can map onto specific biochemical features like telomere shortening. That's a very new way of thinking about psychiatric illnesses. And the reason I think that's important is that if we can identify common factors to psychiatric illnesses instead of saying, okay, well, let's block this person's dopamine or let's give this person some more serotonin. Instead of doing that, we can look at underlying biological conditions that traverse these disorders and perhaps can antioxidants treat a spectrum of mental illness or at least certain symptoms within that spectrum? Can anti-inflammatories do that? Can drugs that increase telomerase do that? So the goal here is to try to define new targets at which we can um, aim our treatments. And not just pharmacology, as I'll show you at the very end of the talk, there are a number of behavioral treatments or lifestyle changes that may also have some of these benefits. So we don't need to wait for pharmaceutical companies to develop these new drugs necessarily. Okay. So let me summarize what we've seen up until now. What can cause short telomeres? Oxidative damage, inflammation, cortisol, stress-related adrenaline release, low telomerase, chronic viral infections, uh, a little bit less worked out, but that seems to be um, possible as well, early life adversity. So the take-home message is what I just went on about, that it's possible but not proven that intervening in these kind of pathways could delay cell aging and improve health even if not targeting the mental illness per se. Okay. okay. So how early can telomere shortening be seen in depression? How, what's the earliest age at which you can detect telomere shortening in someone who's depressed? And another way of asking that, which comes first? Do, de do people that have been living with depression, do they develop short telomeres? Or 
the people that start off with short telomeres, are they more likely to develop depression? Which comes first? A couple of studies have recently looked at this. Um, one was done um, here at UCSF, uh, but the subjects were from UC San Diego, and they looked at adolescents, they're about 12 to 14 years old, who had just developed depression recently, but they'd never yet been medicated, very recently depressed people. And they found that even in these very recent untreated depressed people, the the adolescents with major depression already had significantly shorter telomeres than the controls. This is the study that I was alluding to before that I think is fascinating. This was a study that was done at Stanford by Ian Gottlieb, and he has a large study called, I think it's called the Girls Study, and he recruits girls who are not depressed, but whose mothers, and I think their grandmothers as well, have depression, so they're at strong genetic risk for developing depression, and he recruits similarly aged and similarly demographic girls who are not at genetic risk for developing depression. Okay? And he found that in these girls, even though they had not even yet declared themselves as having a depressive disorder, they already had shorter telomeres than the girls, um, than the controls. Fascinating. Um, so that suggests that telomere shortening happens early in the course of illness. Perhaps it predates the illness. Maybe it's a vulnerability factor. But I don't think that's the whole story because there's also evidence that the longer you live with depression, the, shorter you, the, the steeper your decline in telomere length. So my best guess is that it's probably both. They may start off with a vulnerability, but once they acquire the illness, the trajectory kind of turns down and they may be at risk um, both from having the vulnerability and for having an illness-related problem, such as maybe inflammation or oxidative stress. This was such a important study that Tom Insel, who was the director of NIMH then, wrote a commentary on it. Now, I'll read this to you. Beyond suggesting a risk biomarker for the early identification of depression, this finding indicates, indicates a troubling early sign of risk for premature biological aging and possibly age-related chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease. Investigating the cause and timing of decreased telomere length, to what extent it may result from abnormalities and stress responses or is genetically influenced, for example, will be important for understanding the relationship between cellular aging, depression, and other medical conditions. Okay. okay. So I'm going to move from here into something that's related, but I think is very interesting. Um, early life adversity, how does that relate to cellular aging in the future, way in the future? Okay. Some people talk about early life adversity, at least in some individuals, as being a scar that never totally heals over, at least in some people. There's a lot of individual variability, of course. Um, one of the ways that we can measure early life adversity is um, something called the Adverse Childhood Experience Scale, or the, the ACE. And the ACE has a number of categories, eight categories. Um, I'll read them. Emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, household substance abuse, household mental illness, mother treated violently, incarcerated household member, or parental separation. The way the scoring of the scales work, scale works is that if an individual before adolescence has any of these um, items, they get a point for each one they have. So if someone's had none of these adversities during their childhood, they'd get a score of zero. If they happen to experience all of these, they would have a score of eight. Okay? One thing that I don't like about the scale is that it doesn't differentiate between if someone had that adversity once or a dozen times, uh, and it doesn't differentiate between, um, among how did people respond to the stress, was it, to the adversity, was it stressful or not stressful. But nonetheless, it's a not perfect scale, but nonetheless, it's proven very informative in a lot of studies. And I'll show you some of these right now. This is a study that looked at the ACE score from zero all the way up to four or more adversities experienced. The more 
childhood adversities you have, the more likely you are to develop depression as an adult, from like 20-something percent up to 50-something percent. And the more ACEs you had during childhood, the more comorbid physical disorders you'll develop in adulthood as well. And the more recent study, this uses a different scale, but it's the same basic idea. The more childhood adversity someone experienced during childhood, the more inflammation they had in their blood when they were adults. IL-6 is called, it's called a cytokine, and that's one of the things that's released by white blood cells to, to affect the um, inflammatory response, and it's a marker of how inflamed someone's system is. Okay, well, what about telomeres? Because that's, that's what we're talking about here. The first study to look at this was by Tirka, who's at Brown University, and she compared individuals, not depressed individuals, just individuals with, who had childhood maltreatment versus those that did not have childhood maltreatment. Those with childhood maltreatment as adults had significantly shorter telomere length. Another study very similar to that, um, zero through four or more adversities, a linear um, relative uh, telomere length that the more adversities an individual had, the more likely they were to have short telomeres. Okay, so let me ask this question. Now, how early in life can adverse events affect adult telomere length? What what do you think? Like um, 10, 10 years old, 15 Two years old? Two years old? Three? I think prenatal. Prenatal, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's the right answer. In uterus, this is really, really surprising. Um, this was a big finding. This was a big deal finding. It really surprised me. It surprised a lot of people. Who would have thought? Um, so this is um, a study that was done in Germany where apparently they have really good records of prenatal care. So they recruited women who were about 20 years old or so, and they only accepted women who had no significant adversity in their own lives, not even early life adversity. Okay, so they were, quote, clean from birth on. The only difference in the two groups of women was that one group had mothers who experienced substantial stress that was reported in their well-baby visits. The other group had mothers who did not report stress. Okay? So the only difference in these 20-year-old women is how much stress they were exposed to in utero, as far as we could tell, as far as they could tell. And they found that the prenatal stress group, the group that had maternal stress while they were a fetus, had significantly shorter telomeres as 20-year-olds. So even though nominally they didn't differ from birth onward, that exposure to stress or maybe stress hormones, maybe cortisol, who knows what, in utero affected a lifelong change, or potentially a lifelong change. And they found that um, the difference between these two groups on average was about three and a half years of accelerated biological aging. This is another one done by the same group, very um, kind of adventurous group. They, here they looked at maternal psychosocial stress during pregnancy. It was a prospective study. And then they took blood from the, um, they took um, cord blood, which reflects some um, more of the newborn blood rather than the maternal blood, okay, from the umbil- umbilical cord. And they found that the more maternal stress that was reported um, prospectively over the course of a woman's pregnancy, the shorter the telomeres in the cells that were in the cord blood, which is um, largely from the the baby. So the more stress the mother experiences, the baby starts off even before um, it's born into the world um, with shorter telomeres. Interesting. I've mentioned this several times, but I want to emphasize this again, that this is on average. There can be a lot of people that are born to stressed mothers, and they have great telomeres. Maybe they have a lot of protective factors, who knows what. So this is really just on average. It's not on an individual person basis. That, that's important to keep in mind. Okay, telomerase. So moving from telomeres to the restorative enzyme telomerase, 
telomeres can be pair telomeres, but something that is increasingly interesting is that despite its name having to do with telomeres, telomerase, it may have other properties that have not been as of yet well identified that are directly important in psychiatry. In addition to repairing telomeres, telomerase may have direct antidepressant and neurotrophic effects. So telomerase may be an antidepressant itself, and it may also have neurotrophic means the ability to cause growth in neurons. Okay. So let's take a look at um, two slides of this. This is a study done in uh, mice, published in 2011. Really, really interesting study. They took mice, and they there's a way to genetically knock out certain parts of the genome. So they knocked out the telomerase part of the genome in a mouse. They bred that mouse through four generations, and each time they kept them without having the telomerase gene. Okay, um, That's... That's this group here, and I'll show you how that differs from this. So G4, generation four. This group here, they did the exact same thing. They had four successive generations of mice without telomerase activity, but they gave them four weeks of reactivating telomerase. They gave them like a a vector, a viral vector that reintroduced telomerase into their system. And what we're looking at here, so these are um, nucleuses and um, uh, cell bodies of neurons. The red here is evidence of a newly generated neuron, a brand new neuron. And they found that just giving telomerase for even as short as period as four weeks can start to regrow neurons that had been suppressed due to telomerase inhibition. Okay? Um, and let me, I'll read this other quote. It's interesting. Um, it may go a little bit far um, afield, but recently in Nature, Jaskelyev demonstrated that multiple aging phenotypes in a mouse model of accelerated telomer, telomere loss can be reversed within four weeks of reactivating telomerase. This raises raises the major question of whether physiological aging, likely caused by a combination of molecular defects, may also be reversible. So what they were asking is, can telomerase be the fountain of youth? Can you not only slow down aging with telomerase, can you give telomerase to someone with an old phenotype, an old-appearing individual, and reverse aging? Very interesting. Um, Before we get off that topic, I personally would not be too... Um, ready to take telomerase myself because what, think about it. What happens if you have, if you have a lot of telomerase? And you can. There are herbal remedies that, may, um, that do stimulate telomerase in the body. But think about that. If you have telomerase, which keeps telomerase, you have cells that are replicating. Nature wants those cells to start getting shorter and shorter. But if you give them telomerase, those cells are never going to get shorter. What happens if you have a cancer cell and you make that cancer cell immortal? Cancer cells usually die off because their telomeres get shorter and they die off. If you keep their telomeres long artificially, it potentially could be relevant to causing cancer. The people that market those um, preparations say they have never seen that in animals or humans yet, but I personally don't think it's, it's a ripe thing yet to take telomerase-activating um, herbal remedies yourself at this point. But it's something to keep an eye on, clearly. Okay. Um, This is some data from our group. We looked at, and it's directly relevant to this study, which was done, I don't think I mentioned this, but this was in the hippocampus of the mice, looking at regenerated neurons in the hippocampus. So in our depressed humans, we um, looked at telomerase activity before we gave them any antidepressants, just at baseline, and we correlated that with, we did MRI scans on them, very detailed MRIs, and we could measure the volume of their hippocampuses, and we 
um, correlated their telomerase activity with the hippocampal volume. And the more, it's a small scale study, as you can see, so it needs to be replicated. But the more telomerase activity people had in their blood cells, the larger their hippocampal volume. So it's tantalizing. And this was seen in the depressed people, not as clearly in the controls. And one of the things that we're hypothesizing that happens in depression is that depressives actually have, unlike Alyssa Epple's caregivers that had low telomerase, our depressed people actually have high telomerase relative to controls, even though they have short telomeres. Our working hypothesis is that part of depression, depression is not all bad, I think. I think part of depression is the body's attempt to restore itself and recover from damage. So our theory is that depressed people who are having their telomeres being endangered, they activate their telomerase as much as they can to try to protect themselves. We also have some data that I'm not showing in this talk that when you give an individual with depression an antidepressant like an SSRI, their telomerase increases further, and the more it increases, the better the antidepressant response. Hence the notion that telomerase may not only be um, neuroprotective or facilitate neurogenesis, but may have direct antidepressant effects as well. Something to keep an eye on. Okay. So what's the good news? So telomere length and or telomerase activity have been looked at in association with a number of things, generally in healthy, healthy individuals. But I want to point out before I read this list that these were cross-sectional, you know, right at one point, time point, um, correlations. They do not necessarily imply causality at all. So just they're related, but I'm not going to say at all that these things cause beneficial effects in the telomere system. But things that are cross-sectionally associated with better telomeres or better telomerase activity, exercise, Dietary restraint, multivitamins, especially antioxidant ones like vitamin C and E, folate, omega-3 fatty acids. This is the only one on this list that I'm aware of that has been studied in a prospective double-blind trial. And they did find that taking omega-3 fatty acids relative to placebo did increase telomerase activity. So omega-3s might be something to keep an eye on. Um, when I talked to Alyssa Eppel about this, um, she, she, again, she's the one that did the first study, she says that she personally takes omega-3 fatty acids because she thinks the evidence is pretty good. Um, I think she might even have been an author on that study. Um, social support, stress management, statins, estrogen, fruits and vegetables, meditation, sleep. This is that herbal remedy I was talking about, astragalus membranaceus, otherwise known as TA65. Antidepressants may increase telomerase activity. And possible, possible unfavorable regulators, obesity, insulin resistance, homocysteine, cigarette smoking, and pessimism. This is a, another very interesting study done by Eli Puderman. He was at UCSF at the time. Now he's moved to, I think, the University of British Columbia. He looked at um, individuals, and he characterized them as to how much multi-system resiliency they had. And he defined this construct of multi-system resiliency as being comprised of healthy emotion regulation, strong social connections, good sleep, and good exercise patterns. Okay. And then he looked at people that were depressed or people that were non-depressed, looked at their telomere length. In the people that had low resiliency, people that had poor emotion regulation, poor social support, poor sleep, poor exercise, in that group, the depressed people had substantially shorter telomeres than the controls, than the non-depressed people. But as people increased in their resiliency, the people that had really good social support, good emotion regulation, good sleep, good exercise, it seemed like that protected them from the deleterious effects of depression. I say protected, that implies causation. I don't mean to imply it, but just cross-sectionally it was associated with um, less 
of a damaging effect on telomeres. So perhaps emotion regulation, social support, good sleep and exercise are good. It's hard to argue that, that they wouldn't be. They pre- but they may be good for your telomeres as well. Um, if you remember that first slide I showed you, the um, scatter plot with the line of telomeres going down like this with age and telomeres, and I showed you there's a lot of scatter there. If you look at telomere length over relatively short periods of time, this was adults, in, um, 70 to 79-year-old adults, and they followed them for two and a half years, and they wanted to see, do all of these adults go down in telomere length over the two and a half year period? And they found that was not the case. Um, about a third of them got shorter, about 45% of them didn't show any change, and about 25% actually got longer over time. So there's a lot of individual variability in how much telomeres change over time, especially over a short period of time, like two and a half years. If you look at people over 10, 15, 20 years, it's largely the case that everyone goes down. Um, I, I think many of you have heard of Dean Ornish. He's on cardiology here. And he did um, you know, his, he has a study of very rigorous um, diet, exercise, meditation, et cetera, um, showing that in many individuals it can actually reverse cardiovascular disease, not just slow it down. So he took some patients. These were um, prostate cancer, men, men with early-stage prostate cancer um, who did not elect to have surgery. And they measured telomerase at baseline and after three months of being engaged in his program. So at baseline, they, they were new patients at his clinic. At three months, they practiced his program for three months. And there was not a control group, which is a um, um, uh, downside to the study. But he found that after three months of being engaged in his program, telomerase substantially increased after three months. This is another study that I think is, is quite interesting. This was done by um, Cliff Sarin at UC Davis. So he took men that were able to take off from whatever they were doing for three months and go to a retreat in the Rocky Mountains for an intensive um, stay of meditation. They meditated for eight to ten hours a day for three months in a retreat setting. Um, there was not a strict control group that went to the same retreat and didn't do the meditation, but they did have a waitlist control. Men that were demographically similar, they also were able to take off three months, but they didn't go to the retreat, they didn't meditate. And he found that the ones that went to the retreat at the end of the study had significantly more telomerase activity than the waitlist controls. Um, unfortunately, they were not pre-post values, so it's just an endpoint study. This is a really interesting aspect of the study that I think that makes me somewhat of a believer that it's not only due to that they were up in the, it was in the Rocky Mountains, that they were up in the Rocky Mountains maybe eating healthy food. I think there was more to it than that. Um, they, looked, they had a scale called well-being, and part of that scale was purpose in life. And the way they defined this is that people that were high in purpose in life, they have goals in life, a sense of directedness. They feel there's meaning to their present and past life. They hold beliefs that give their life purpose. They have aims and objectives for living. Okay. In contrast, a low scorer on the purpose in life scale lacks a sense of meaning in life, has few goals or aims, lacks a sense of direction, does not see purpose of past life, has no outlook or beliefs that give life meaning. Okay. Now here we're looking at telomerase activity, and this is looking at the control group, the waitlist control group. They, and here we're looking at um, how much they changed over the three months in their meaningfulness or their purposefulness in life. And the waitlist control group did not change in their purposefulness in, lo- in life, as, as you would expect. They didn't do an intervention, and their telomerase didn't change. But among the men that went to the three-month retreat, not everyone showed an increase in telomerase activity. It was only the people that had increases in subjective purpose in life compared to baseline that showed the increases in telomerase activity. That, I think, is, is um, 
is striking data that it's something related to the psychology, not just being in the Rocky Mountains or eating good food. Um, the Dalai Lama was actually a co-investigator or a um, consultant on the study, and this is, um, this is, this, um, these questions come from him. Telomerase may reflect an important health state of a person that relates to their psychological functioning. And this is the one, the bullet point that I like. Thinking about these data from the Buddhist point of view, might there be a term or a concept or basic outlook that captures something so central about inner life that our longevity might depend on it? It's really interesting. One, th- one, kind of, one study that has not been done yet is, does psychotherapy improve telomerase activity? Does psychotherapy increase telomere length? Do antidepressants do that? Um, those studies have not been done yet. Um, one group in Sweden is beginning to look at cognitive behavioral therapy given to people with social anxiety disorder to see if CBT can increase telomerase activity as well. That'll be really interesting to see if perhaps changing someone's basic psychological outlook can lead to um, um, a healthier cellular milieu. So let me come to a conclusion now. Um, Provisional interpretations. Telomere shortening is observed with chronic stress and in several psychiatric disorders. It's not a specific diagnostic biomarker, but it may point to the presence of specific pathologies or risk factors. It may be more pronounced with longer disease exposure, namely a dose-response relationship. It may result from cumulative exposure to oxidation, inflammation, catecholamines, or cortisol, which are often elevated in these conditions, and telomerase diminution or activation can occur. The latter may be a compensatory response, and this might have prognostic and therapeutic implications, at least vis-a-vis antidepressant response. Um, This brings us way back to the very first um, couple of slides of the talk. Certain diseases now considered mental illnesses may be reconceptualized as systemic bodily conditions, albeit with prominent behavioral manifestations. Understanding cell aging and stress and psychiatric disorders may explain the high medical comorbidity and should lead to new treatment targets for both the psychiatric and the physical diseases. And lifestyle factors, as we saw in that previous chart, may be important modifiable risk factors. So regardless of your genetic um, um, inheritance, your early life adversity or lack of adversity, the current stress you're under, it's possible that certain lifestyle factors may be able to alter the trajectory. Um, this is, um, I'm going to close with a quote from Hans Selye. He was one of the first psychoneuroendocrinologists. And this was written back in 1950, I think. And this is um, really kind of prescient for the, the current data. Every stress leaves an indelible scar. And the organism pays for its survival after a stressful situation by becoming a little older. Hans Selye. Um, at the table um, outside when you first came in, there's some brochures that talk about um, the research study we're doing here that generated some of the data that I showed you before. And if you have any friends, family that might be interested or yourselves, uh, please give us a call and we can talk to you about the study. Um, these are my co-investigators, which I won't go through in detail. This is my funding. And be glad to answer any questions now. Thanks for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.